The Jodcast, Blizzard with Science, with George Bendo, Monique Henson, Minnie Mao, Benjamin Shaw, and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast, November 2016, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Ben, and joining me in the studio are Monique and Charlie. Hey Ben. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, Charlie interviews Katie Detweiler about the cultural anthropology of the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, and George, Minnie and I answer your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Monique interviews Dr. Joe Zuntz in this month's Jodbite. Hi, so I'm here today with Joe Zuntz. Um, welcome back to the Jodcast, Joe. Thank you for having me. Uh, and we thought we'd have you back on the show because you're leaving us soon. I am. I've been here more than three years now, three and a half years. And I gave uh, a little interview at the beginning when I first joined. So I thought it'd be really nice to do an exit interview, if you like. All the things I've achieved and done over the last three and a half years. Yeah, and um, you might recognise Joe because he's done a few Ask an Astronomers as well. So we're going to have to find someone else to answer your questions once he's gone. Absolutely, yeah. The uh, general relativity ones and the hardcore quantum ones, what you guys usually left to me. So that was, <laughs> that was what I ended up doing. Um, and of course you enjoyed doing that as well. I did. It was very good fun. Yeah, it was great. So what have you been up to in your three years at Manchester? So I am a weak lenser, so that means most of my work involves looking at the bending of light by gravitational fields. Um, now that's quite famous, especially uh, these last few years, because it's the uh, approaching the centenary of, or sorry, it's, it's, it's past the centenary of the first measurement of this, which was Arthur Eddington confirming general relativity in a really amazing experiment that's definitely worth looking up. But what we do now is the same thing on a kind of grand scale. We're interested in mapping out the gravitational fields of the universe by looking at the tiny, tiny distortions that gravity makes on distant galaxies as the light from them passes through the universe and comes to us. So most of my job has been associated with making those maps, so trying to understand how galaxies are distorted by by this kind of gravitational effect. So measuring the shapes of very large numbers of very tiny, very blurry galaxies. That's a big chunk of my time. Another big thing that I do is how you kind of get the science from that out at the end. It's all very well making a map or making a big list of all the galaxies and where they are and what shape they have. But there's loads of work to do to actually say, what does this tell us about theories? What does this tell us about how the universe is expanding, about what's in the universe, about the structures in the universe, about the laws of gravity themselves? So all these things we can get a handle on from these kind of measurements, but it's very difficult, it's very complicated. The the, the connection between theory and data is a, a very long sequence of quite difficult calculations. And trying to put those in a framework where we can do them and where any old theorist can just come along and say, hey, I've got this cool new theory, I'd like to test my awesome theory of gravity. How do I do that? And be able to point them to something to say, hey, this is what you do, is a big part of what I've been trying to do. So producing those data products almost. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's data products, but it's also kind of theoretical calculation code as well. So most, lots of astronomers now, as many of our listeners will know, are programmers or a big part of our job is computer programming. And that's because broadly speaking, all the problems that were easy enough to do on paper, we've already done. And so most of what's left, the interesting calculations that we have to do, especially when it comes to big amounts of data, those are things you really have to do in a massive computing kind of way. So we start off with enormous images. So we start off with years and years worth of image data taken from very big telescopes, these enormous uh, sky surveys. And there are loads of processes we go through to try and gradually reduce that down to something more useful. So we do a bunch of steps in that process to try and turn raw data into something that's scientifically useful at the end. And that's a, yeah, it's a very long process. 
So you've been um, very heavily involved in the Dark Energy Survey. Would you like to tell me a bit more about what that survey is aiming to do um, and what you've done towards it? Absolutely, yeah. So the Dark Energy Survey is one of a few different surveys that are trying to measure big chunks of the sky and trying to measure lensing effects on big chunks of the sky. So... DES, we're about three years into the five or six years of DES right now. We've got funding for five years and we're hoping for a sixth, fingers crossed. DES is making, over the course of its six years, five or six years, a map of 5,000 square degrees. So that's about an eighth of the entire sky in the Southern Hemisphere, using a telescope called the Blanco Telescope in central Chile. And what that will hopefully open a window up on for us is the evolution of structure in the universe. So it will tell us, you know, how has structure grown between when the universe was half its current age, for example. And what that in turn gives us a handle on is dark energy. So the big thing that seems very mysterious and bizarre, and it certainly is, it's a name for a strange effect, which is acceleration of the universe. We're basically certain that the universe is accelerating, but we've really got no idea why. So some theories like the name sort of suggests are an energy field that causes this to happen. Lots of other theories involve changing laws of gravity or causing some other, you know, some other effects to try and to try and mimic this acceleration. One effect that the universe accelerating or the universe's expansion history has is on how structure in the universe grows. So that's how what starts off as maybe a small blob of matter, how it accretes more and more matter and then becomes what in the modern universe is a galaxy or a cluster of galaxies. So the idea is that in the early universe, the universe is very, very simple. There's not many, there's no giant objects. Everything's a very kind of uniform soup of matter. And gradually over the past 14 billion years, that's kind of accreted under gravity to form the giant structures we see in the modern universe, like the really cool dramatic cosmic web pictures that you get if you look at the pictures from these surveys and how that happens the details of how that happens depend very closely on how the universe is expanding so if we can measure how the structure is growing we can understand how the universe is expanding and accelerating and maybe if we're very lucky that will give us a handle on the underlying causes of that acceleration that's the big five-year goal do you think we will actually have some idea of what causes this acceleration not even in the next five years but maybe even at 20 25 years do you think that's a good question um <laughs> i think we've got a very good chance there's no guarantee it could just be the the simplest theory that we have which is just there is a uniform effect throughout the whole universe accelerating it which isn't really an explanation it's just a description really of an effect if that effect is unchanging with time and unchanging with position so if it's totally uniform effect everywhere in space and time that's the both the baseline default answer that we think is the most likely, perhaps, but also the one we, we don't really understand. I mean, we don't really predict why that energy field should have the value it has. It, it opens up way more questions than it answers. So if we're very lucky, we'll find something different. Maybe we'll find some other effects. Maybe there's some some change in time of dark energy. Maybe there's some change in space of dark energy. Maybe it's a, a dynamic thing. If, if that happens to be true, we've, we've gotten, it's very hard to say whether that's likely to be true or not, because it's, you know, that's up to the universe, really. And But if that turns out to be true, then we're going to find that. That's going to be really, really exciting. It's going to be a tremendous burst of excitement if that really happens. The most likely thing that I, I think is probably true is this uniform energy field effect. And if that's the case, then instead we learn about all kinds of other stuff with, with these big surveys. So if we can't learn about dark energy, what we can learn about is dark matter. We can learn about the evolution history of dark matter itself. So we can say how do clouds of dark matter, uh, halos we call them, interact and collide and grow. And what's the effect of that on the galaxies that live in the dark matter as well. So kind of it's a two-pronged thing. Either we find out some amazing stuff about the universe, or if that stuff all turns out to be very straightforward, then we find a bunch of other stuff sort of exciting science instead. 
Or both. Or both, even better. Yeah, that'd be way more exciting. Yeah, and also a whole bunch of、um, we learn a whole bunch about methods as well. So dark energy survey is ongoing, but most of the time now that, that I spend over the last few years has been switching to a slightly different experiment, which is called LSST. So that's the、uh, the large synoptic survey telescope. So LSST is DS on steroids. It's it's a, it's a <laughs> scaled up version of the same thing, if if you like. It's got a particularly exciting focus, which is being really really fast. So it's a telescope that can take images very very quickly, and so it can be amazing for doing studies of transient things. So you can look at a place in the sky and then. Go away and then come back very, very frequently because you're moving around so quickly. So that'll be great for studying supernovae, where you want to look away, look back again, look look away, look back again. It'll be great for studying things in our solar system as well, so dwarf planets、mm-hmm. and asteroids. It's going to make the biggest asteroid catalogue that's ever been made. So it'll be great for、um, protecting us from killer asteroids. It's going to be the fir- <laughs> first chance we get. But it doesn't mean we can do anything about them. Not as such, no. <laughs> but it's the you know the first step is knowing if there's a threat yes, out there certainly. But it's also going to be great for lensing. So it can map out very big area, and that's the one thing we really really need to be able to do these lensing experiments really really well. It's going to make a huge huge map. So in the first two months of LSST. It can do the same as the entire six-year dark energy survey, wow, so it's going to just massively compressed、mm-hmm. timescale. But of course, that means we have to learn really, really well how to do this analysis. So, in lots of areas of astronomy and wider science, you're torn in two directions in your experiments. And one is just random errors, just things that are that you kind of understand in your data. You know, we know that. You know, galaxies are sort of randomly positioned, so we have a sort of random signal with how many we happen to pick up in a given place.、Mm-hmm. We have to understand that, and that's called noise. Sometimes、so、we get noise in electronics, in telescope cameras, all those kinds of things, and that's the thing we kind of understand. It's an it's a known unknown, if you like. What we have to fight, and, and and you can always improve that by building a bigger telescope and building, you know, more powerful detectors. You can always kind of beat that down by doing more data. More data will always beat that down. What more data won't always beat down is what we call systematic errors. Very generally, it's an unknown unknown. So it's something where you think there may be a problem with this data. It's Perhaps caused by this effect, but I don't really have a sense of how big this problem is. You know, what exactly it's doing. So there's a bunch of those that hit us in lensing surveys. One is that it's very hard to know how far away galaxies are. So it's a very, very difficult process to figure out how far away galaxies because you just you just see in the data you just see a little blob, and it could be a big blob that's close by or a small blob that's a long way away. And we have a bunch of methods for trying to figure that stuff out. But if those methods are wrong. That's going to really affect our results in a way we may not really understand. So what we've really got to do for LSST in these big upcoming surveys, and this LSST is starting in 2020 and will be a 10-year mission, is really understand these very difficult effects and these details of what's hitting our data.、Um, and if we can do that, then we can really understand the kind of full power that LSST will get us. If we try to do that now, we'd have no chance. You know, <laughs> it sounds like DES is pointless if you can do the whole thing in two months of LSST, but it certainly isn't, and we'd have no chance of understanding the data LSST will tell us without years of practice. Really, just like a stepping、um, stone. It's a stepping stone, exactly. You can't, you know, you can't jump straight to the end <laughs> of the whole <laughs> thing. You have to learn how to use this kind of data and learn what the problems with it are. I'm making that sound very positive and very fun, but <laughs> actually, of course, what I mean is that we spend years and years stuck on bizarre problems and just confusing issues with our data. Getting very stressed.、Actually. Getting very, getting very stressed, and you know, having big arguments about no, my bit's working, yours isn't working, that kind of thing. So that that's been a big chunk of the last few years. Yeah, it's that kind of confusion. So because that, that's something that always intrigues me, and actually, when I've given like talks and stuff to the public, people actually are very interested in how do you go and disentangle all of those things? Because obviously, you've got lots of different systematics, and how can you Figure out 
which one is causing what. Absolutely. And there isn't really a general prescription. That's one of the problems with this thing. There's a few kind of techniques and tricks you can do to tease out things like, is what I'm seeing an effect in the telescope, perhaps, or in the atmosphere that's, that's messing with my data, or is it a real thing in the real universe? So one of those is what we call null tests. So a null test is a comparison or a, a study or a test, an analysis of data, which should give you nothing. It should give you a zero result. And very commonly, that might be, for example, measuring a property of stars or galaxies on two different days of the week. Okay. Now, stars shouldn't really change, or most stars shouldn't really, galaxies certainly shouldn't really change from one day to the next because they are, they last hundreds of millions, billions of years. <laughs> so, you know, Monday versus Tuesday shouldn't really make much of a difference. So if you, if you do sort of Tuesday minus Monday in your analysis, that should really be zero. If there's a difference between Tuesday's data and Monday's data, then you've probably made a mistake somewhere or something's probably gone wrong. Or if there's a difference between data you took towards the end of the night and the beginning of the night, that would be an indication because that's really a local thing. It's about our telescope now and the Earth, not about the universe. So if there's a difference between those two things, that's a kind of a clue that something's gone wrong. So we have lots of those. Unkind people have suggested we should do that with observers. So we should say, <laughs> let's take away observations you took, minus observations I took, and see <laughs> see if we, we have different results. So a big part of our work is sort of constructing tests like that, constructing things where if the only thing out there was, was out in the universe, if there were no problems with our telescope, no problems with our the atmosphere, no problems with our data analysis at all, then we should get no, no result. Mm -hmm. And then if we do get a result, if we see actually, oh, actually, that's not quite true, maybe something's gone wrong. So one example would be we pick a bunch of random positions in, in our sky map and we take an average shape of galaxies around those random positions. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't have any particular signal to it because we just chose a place at random. It shouldn't be there. A galaxy shouldn't be pointing, you know, any particular way towards or around any given random point in the sky. So with enough random points, we expect to beat that down to zero. You know, if we, if we average the shapes of galaxies around random points, we should get no particular direction to them. Mm -hmm. And if we do, that's telling us we've, we've probably messed up some step along the way in either looking at our images or looking at our data in some other way. So there's a whole enormous process for doing this. The other thing we, we kind of do is is model all our errors. So try, we try and say, what are the things that could go wrong with our data? Let's try and understand them. And let's make a model for them. Let's say, just like we make models for things out there in the universe, we make models of the universe, we make models of galaxies. We also make models of things that can go wrong. So we make models of the errors in measuring distances to galaxies. So we say, okay, say we get distances wrong by 10%. What does that do? And we try and build a model of those errors just like we do the real universe. So in a, in a really um, rich picture, in a very uh, you know coherent picture, you try to turn all these systematic errors into statistical ones. So you're trying to say, all these things I don't really understand, I've at least turned into numbers that I can try and measure. And that's not perfect because you don't really know what's going on in a lot of these problems, but it's certainly the first step towards trying to understand them. So given that LSST is four years away now, is that, yeah, four years? Uh, four years or so, yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so what for you do you think is the biggest challenge you're going to face? And what's the, so what's the thing you're kind of worried about now, not um, getting it right in that's time? A, that's a good question. Um, so t two main things I'm worried about most. One is that LSST is, uh, because it's such a fast telescope, it's mm -hmm. going to take thousands of pictures of every individual galaxy. So it's not going to get, take one very, very beautiful picture of a galaxy. It's going to take a thousand kind of blurry, mm -hmm. noisy pictures of a galaxy. And that makes it very, very difficult to, to analyse that data because on the face of it you've got a thousand times as much data that you have to analyse so if all the methods we've been using so far on DES we try to use those in LSST we'd spend the next hundred years running computer programs to, to do this so you know that's a very big worry just the kind of volume of everything that we have to do 
paralysis T. The other, for, for me, is distances to galaxies. So we call these redshifts in astronomy. So that's the redshift is to do with how much the universe has expanded since the galaxy you're looking at emitted its light. So it's how old the light is you're looking at, and that's a kind of a proxy for distance. And that's a very challenging thing to measure. So very worried about that as well. What makes it hard to measure that? So there's a few ways you can try and measure the distance to a galaxy. If it's a nearby galaxy, you can use methods like Cepheids or Cepheids, mm-hmm. which rely on measuring individual stars in those galaxies and, and measuring their behaviour. The galaxies we're talking about are way too far away to do anything like that, so we can't really do that. For our galaxies, we have to find other methods. Now, if you can find the redshift of a galaxy, so the redshift of a galaxy you, you measure inherently by taking a spectrum of the galaxy. So you say, I can look at the, the light emission from this galaxy and I can see lines in it in particular colours. So I can look for the line that hydrogen emits, for example, or the lines that hydrogen emit, and a bunch of other signals as well. That's, that's great, and that works incredibly well. You get a super high-precision redshift from doing that. Problem is that it takes a very long time for any one galaxy, so you have to spend ages and ages staring at one galaxy in order to do this. And that doesn't really fit in with our what we want, which is to have a huge area of sky. We'd have to focus on a few galaxies for a really, really long time to be able to do that. Instead, what we do is kind of a proxy for that. We, we can't afford to stare at one galaxy with a, a spectrum for a very long time. What we can do is put filters in front of our telescope. So we have a, you know, a red filter and a green filter, an infrared filter, a whole sequence of different filters. So that means you're essentially measuring the amount of light in a galaxy in a few different colours in sort of broad bands. And the idea is that's kind of acts like a very, very crude spectrum. So it acts like a very, very low resolution spectrum. And hopefully if we can model galaxies well enough, then we can understand by looking at this very, very low resolution spectrum, we can at least get a very noisy measurement of the redshift of a galaxy. The problem is that that sort of depends on having a bunch of galaxies whose redshift you know really, really well and perfectly to calibrate. So you want to say, okay, these are ones where I know the correct answer and here's what it looks like in my data so I can like make a map from one of those to the other. The difficulty is that it's very, very hard to get enough galaxies and the same population of galaxies, the same sample of galaxies, to match between the two sets, between your you know, your giant sample of billions of galaxies and your high-precision, high-resolution set, because they don't, they don't really match up. For example, we get much fainter galaxies when we look at the big survey uh, compared to the small regions. So that's why it's a very challenging process to do, because you're, you're trying to mesh together two things that don't really mesh together. That's really interesting to hear. Yeah. And good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. I hope it goes well. So you're moving to Edinburgh soon. What are you looking forward to most moving? Yes, I'm going to Edinburgh. So I'm going to have a very interesting job title there. So I'm going to be a Chancellor's Fellow in Astrophysics and Big Data. Big Data is a cool new thing that all the, all the cool kids are doing right now. And it's very, very appropriate to astronomy. So as astronomers have been dealing with large amounts of data for a very, very long time. What my new job will involve is trying to learn the the, the lessons we've learned from doing that and the methods and the the tools and the research we've done into how to handle these big data sets. How can we use that to benefit the wider economy? How How can we benefit companies that maybe want to learn how to handle big data or do big analyses? And how can we benefit non-profits and all those kind of things as well? So we're trying to have some impact beyond just traditional astronomy and trying to use all these methods we've got really, really good at using out in the wider world. So I guess I'm looking forward to that very much indeed. Yeah, that sounds quite exciting, really. Are there any cases already where kind of those techniques are already applied? There are a few, yeah. So um, they're they're not always good. Um, So uh, physics has always given lessons to the financial industry in particular. Mm. So a a great many people who are kind of former physicists go off and work in quantitative finance. That, that's one area where it's been very strong. Obviously, sometimes they cause horrifying crashes. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. so we, <laughs> we don't like to talk about that. But so finance has been one area where it's been a very strong connection in astronomy as well as wider areas. But what, what we kind of think is we can probably move beyond that. You know, finance is a really interesting area that we can we think we can can learn a lot. But we think there's other companies and other industries that really want to use you know 
big data sets and really understand them. So healthcare is a very interesting one. Oh, I so, that. Yeah, doctors collect huge amounts of information from millions of billions of patients around the world and locked away in that information is all kinds of cures, really. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of facts in there about what methods work and what don't. That's really very hard to analyse, um, partly because you're dealing with such large amounts of data and partly because it's very complicated. So, you know, it's, it's not like it's... It, we're very kind of spoilt in physics because we, you know, we see if it's very simple and it's very mm-hmm. simple. And we have very often large number statistics. So we're going to measure 100 billion yeah. galaxies with LSST. Mm-hmm. Lots of medical situations really only have, you know, a handful of, of patients to mm-hmm. deal with. But that makes sort of doing proper statistics and doing proper analyses very, 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 very important mm-hmm. when you've got a very small number of people and we've seen the results of in lots of high profile situations that's gone wrong, when that's yeah. gone wrong. So it, it's a very challenging thing to do. Okay, well, it's been great to have you back on the Jodcast. Uh, thanks very much. It's been really nice to be on here and also to be around in Manchester for a good few years. Yeah, and hopefully we'll catch up with you again soon. Find out how you're getting on in Edinburgh. I hope so. That'd be nice. All right. Thanks very much. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks for that, Monique. Now, Charlie interviews Katie Detweiler about cultural anthropology of the Atacama Large Millimetre Array. Today I'm joined by Katie Detweiler, who is a doctoral candidate in cultural anthropology at the New School for Social Research in New York City. And she's been talking to the ALMA team at Manchester. So first, I'm going to ask, what are you here for? I've been having a really interesting afternoon having conversations here with the ALMA team about how they're managing the massive data that is coming from ALMA and from the desert of northern Chile, where I just spent about 14 months doing research for my PhD project. And actually, I was in Europe on a completely different project working in Poland for the past two weeks. And since I was already here, I decided to come visit the UK and get in touch with the Alma team here because I spent quite a lot of time in Chile looking at sort of, you could call it like the production side of this massive data. But even after 14 months, by the time I left, I had really no feeling or sensibility for what happens with the data when it travels and how people work with it and what the challenges are. And so I'm starting to piece that together. And that was this afternoon. Just for our listeners, ALMA is an acronym for the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, which is obviously in Chile. And were you staying at the site then? No, I was living in the community of San Pedro de Atacama, which is near the base, about 20-minute drive from the ALMA OSF, which is the operation support facility, the base camp, and where the telescope is operated from, and where maintenance on the antenna happens, as well as some processing. And... So I was in San Pedro for most of the time that I was in Chile, but also working a little in some other communities that are near optical telescopes operated mostly by ESO, the European Southern Observatory. And I mean, maybe I should start by saying how I found myself in Chile. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us about why you have decided on this project. So I did my undergraduate degree in anthropology. I did my master's in anthropology at the new school. And then in our program, you have to do the master's to even be eligible to apply for the PhD. So we go from a cohort of like 25 master's students to a PhD cohort of like three to five. And so I'd done the master's program and I was quite fascinated with anthropology sort of as an object of study. The history of the discipline is very complex and changes in the discipline tend to map onto new epistemic forms and political turns. 
And so I was quite fascinated with the history of anthropology, but most people coming into a PhD program have a very specific project. Like they want to study sex workers' rights in China, mm. or they want to study food practices in Paris suburbs amongst Senegalese immigrants. So you weren't originally focused on astronomical practices in indigenous populations? I was not. I was focused on nothing, and this was a problem. So my faculty said, look, we've let you into the program, but you really have to have a project. And I said, well, I don't have one. I, I'm not sure where in the world I want to study or what. And they said, okay, well, I'm sorry, but you have to have a project. And so I said, okay, fine, I choose the universe. But then I was sort of stuck with it, and I had to figure out where in the world I would actually do this research. Anthropological fieldwork tends to be a year, but it does have to be in a place. Mm. <laughs> and so this sort of brought me to Chile in 2012. I was doing preliminary research in Chile. So I knew there was a huge scientific and technological production around astronomy in Chile. And so I went to sort of investigate this. And simultaneously was erupting, at least for me, I started paying attention to this discourse of the age of big data. And at the time, and maybe it still is this way, but at the time it was talked about in really revolutionary terms, like this is... It's a big buzzword that's being thrown around a lot in our own department, because obviously technology is getting better and better, and you get all of these great, fantastic telescopes. Well, not just in astronomy, but you get all these great ways of generating more data than you can manage as a person, as a team, even as people. So it's a big problem we're looking to tackle in, in yeah. ways like, well, different computer algorithms to automate things and things at projects like Galaxy Zoo as well. Yeah, Citizen right. science. Right. So it provokes lots of challenges and opportunities, some of which look democratic and helpful and things like this. But the rhetoric I was paying attention to was this idea that we're living in an epistemic break and that we're shifting from the third to the fourth paradigm of science or that big data means the death of the theorist. These sort of very grand statements about a real change in epistemology and how we think about knowledge. And what I wanted to know was, just like, you know, as you're saying, I wanted to know how people who are working in the midst of an epistemic break could possibly narrate that. Typically, big breaks in thought and ways of thinking about thought are named retrospectively. And it seems really interesting to me how people are trying to name a rift that we are inside of. And how, especially when it's something like thought, you can't ever be outside of your epistemology. So it's very hard to see if there's a new epistemology coming or forming because we're never outside of our own. Is this just a symptom of sort of the accelerating society? A fact that over the last few years, we made so many leaps and bounds that now we can see something coming, which is that we're going to have too much data to handle, and so we already know that we're going to have a problem, as opposed to having to look back retrospectively and see that there was a big change here or a big change there. Is that part of the reason for that? I would not tend to go to a, like a heavily tech-determinist logic that this technology is provoking a crisis or that this technology is allowing us to see a crisis. It's all a little bit less clear. But I do think we have historical examples of massive floods of data provoking epistemological and political change. Oh, and, could you give us some examples? I mean, I would think of the cosmological crisis produced by plant and animal specimens flooding in during like the age of discovery, mm -hmm. flooding into centers of knowledge in Europe and completely swamping existing categories. 
And out of this, you get lots of new architectures for knowledge to try to organize these things. I think that would be a big data prehistory, which removes the question of technology, which I kind of find useful. But it also introduces some interesting other points, because, for example, I guess... There were no laws about importing foreign species into countries before that, so they could all come in. So it influences more than just the topic that it actually is. It influences more than just biology, or in this case, more than just technology. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. I think there are things that really should be paid attention to with the age of big data. The age of big data, the concerns people have tend to be around issues of privacy, security, ethical governance. Those are the critical discussions. And this more speculative side about, like, how is this transforming ways of thinking and acting, provoking a revolution in how we live, work, and think, this kind of language, it is more speculative, but I think that these questions go together. And so, in a way, while studying big astronomical data in northern Chile, I'm also trying to develop a location in my dissertation where we can think about questions of data transformation shifts in communities of practice or work, like Mm. I'm talking about astronomical practice in this case, but a location where we can think about that in ways that don't look so overdetermined in terms of like questions about like Facebook tracking. In those kinds of situations, data is never interrogated as an interesting challenge of its own. And so something I really like about astronomy is how, in this current moment, is how articulate people are and how hard they're thinking about data and questions of organization, retrievability, quality, corruptibility, archiving, possibilities for archiving, like the square kilometer array. Tom was just telling me its data will be so massive that at first, anyway, it won't be archived in raw form in any way. And he said something that I love as an anthropologist, which in that situation, the sky is the only archive. And you guys probably have that poetic language all the time. So I started to come to Chile in 2012. And I did, through connections to the University of Chile in Santiago, their Center for Mathematical Modeling, I went to Alma for the first time in 2012. And it was in, I would say, midway through construction at that point. And we talked a lot, or I listened to people talk a lot about computational capacities and challenges and network capacity challenges. And the computational specialist at Alma told me, you know, we want infinity to be our ceiling. But he was talking about network capacity, not sort of knowledge of the universe. And so I realized this is a big data question where a non-specialist like myself, you would think you hear someone associated with an astronomical project saying we want infinity to be our universe. Obviously, that means, you know, knowledge of the cosmos, yeah, that kind of infinity, everything. Yeah. everything. But what he was actually using the word infinite to signify was capacity to move and manage massive data. And so that is a big data question where knowledge is increasingly associated with the capacity to move data. So could you give us a quick overview of how... The data is managed maybe within Alma, because Alma is two separate sites in itself. Actually, could you give us a description of the site if you've been there? Let me try to think of my first impressions. I'm actually from New Mexico in the U.S., which is in the southwest, and it's a high desert environment. And when I came to the Atacama, obviously the Atacama is extreme. It's the driest non-polar desert on the planet, with, I think, experiencing about a millimeter of rain a year. 
for 10 months of the year. And then for two months, there's the Altiplanic winter, which brings some moisture. And some moisture also comes in on the Humboldt current in a fog called the Kamanchaka. I took the bus the first time I went, 24 hours on the bus from Santiago to San Pedro, which is sort of the oasis heart of the Atacama. And to my mind, being from New Mexico is extremely beautiful, but it is forbidding. It's wide, wide salt flats, which have flamingos, but it's a kind of like a crusted salt. It's not really like the Ayuni salt flats you would think of from Bolivia. So when I got to the site, it was still under construction. And the site, by the site, I mean the operation support facility, which is sort of the base camp of Alma. So all the antenna were down at the OSF being constructed, actually. So there were three different contractors who had contracts to build these antenna. A U.S. contractor, a European contractor, and a Japanese contractor. So these are the participant countries that together run ALMA, the United States, East Asia, and the European Southern Observatory, which has, I believe, 15 European states and now just about to add Brazil. So these are all the partners in ALMA, and each regional partner had its own contractor to build these antenna, and they all have different designs, actually, but they all have to meet the same specifications. And so that's one thing that's quite impressive is how different the antenna are when before you're there, you hear so much about the synchronization of this data as ALMA's revolutionary potential. So ALMA is an interferometer, which means that it collects data in lots and lots of different telescopes, and then it synchronizes it, and it uses basically long baselines, or the distances between the multiple antenna, in order to look very closely at small points on the sky. Right. And so when you think about the synchronicity and then you see how different actually these antenna are being built by different companies and actually in different physical locations. So are the shapes of the antenna different, like depending they, on what they're built by? They are. Mm -hmm. And of course, at some level, they're not different. And at some level, they really are. And it interested me also as an anthropologist that there was real separation between the different regional partners who on the physical site who were building it. And for example, the U.S. company built, I believe it is now the largest steel and concrete windowless structure on the planet. They built this next to the Alma base camp in order to build the antennas inside of it, obviously without dust or heat or sun. Are there often storms then? Did they need to shield these antenna? Or There are never storms. Yeah, okay. <laughs> except in the Altiplanic winter. But the Japanese contractors built their antenna out in the open air. And what else was going on? So there were huge shipping containers. Most of the technology came from abroad, obviously. The antennas came down. They were shipped to Antofagasta, the dishes themselves, which is the port city of northern Chile over on the west coast, and taken on semi-trucks through the Atacama Desert, creating quite a scene for local communities. And wildlife, I suspect. Yeah. Yeah. And then they arrived at Alma and then they were finally fully assembled. And so when I was there, like there's dishes on the ground and shipping containers everywhere. The people on site were living and sleeping in these shipping containers. I mean, they've obviously been retrofitted to be little bunks, essentially. And could they spend long periods of time up there or did they have to come down because of the altitude problems? At the operation support facility, I believe it's 2,400 meters. The average person would feel it at first and get used to it immediately. But for example, you can't drink alcohol at that altitude. And people who work there stay for 
there's a detail about this that I never get right, but they stay for a shift and then they're away for a shift, like 10 days on something like that. So for more than a week at a time, people are living at that altitude. And then the high site is 5,400 meters. And that is difficult. When I did go, um, how long did you stay for? An hour. (laughs) And did you feel it? Oh, yeah, for sure. What was it like? It feels like your legs are made of concrete. It's incredibly exhausting to do anything. And you don't think very well. You Mm. don't problem solve very well. And actually, if I can go backtrack, so that was not on my first visit to Almond. And so when I first visited, I spoke with people who I met and I said, look, you know, I'm a PhD student in anthropology. I want to come back and do my research here. And they said, we don't understand what an anthropologist wants to do here. Mm. What is an anthropology of an astronomical observatory? We don't really understand. And they said, you know, this is just not legible to us. And to some degree, that taps into a real anxiety and a bit of enmity between social science and the hard sciences. Mm. And So was there a bit of hostility there? Or was it more just a concrete wall that was quite hard to get through in terms of correspondence in email? It was a real resistance, which I don't think was mean-spirited or something. I think Mm. it taps into some like well-founded sort of unstructured anxieties about the way that anthropology and social science in general has treated the hard sciences Mm. as what we would call like cultures of science. Mm. That would have been an earlier moment of anthropology, which basically often got read as saying science is just a system of meaning like any other. And everything is socially constructed, including scientific facts. And science is just one contingent and unstable discourse of truth like many others. And obviously, this is really problematic. (laughs) And scientists have a lot of sort of social memory about this. And so I think there was some anxiety about, like, why does the social scientist want to study hard scientists doing Mm. their work? But then there's more logistical difficulties, which is liability is a real question. Yeah, It's a very extreme place. And also, you know, Alma is a brand new project and they're, at least when I started visiting, they're really trying to figure themselves out and what kinds of access did they want. Now, as of this year, there's public tours, not of the high site, but of operation support facility. So when I was trying to work on this question of access, they said, we just don't really have the mechanisms Mm. to give an anthropology student access. But what does make sense to us is the media. We understand the media. We understand what they want. And so I said, okay, I understand that. Is there also a sense of we understand what they can do for us? Definitely. Definitely, I think. And indeed, there's a huge amount of international media attention around Alma, particularly, though, on its impressive machines, impressive Mm. technologies. And actually, still, you do see the science covered in the press. But at the beginning, it was the transporters. There's two transporters that move the antenna. They move them from OSF to the high site. And at the high site, they move them around on their different pads. So these 66 antenna can be put in a wide variety of configurations all along this plateau. 
And these transporters are absolutely enormous. I think they have 28 wheels and the power of two Formula One race cars. I mean, this kind of like macho stuff in a way. And so, of course, the press likes to cover things like that. It's very easy to jump onto it. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, so Alma said, you know, we don't understand who you are, but if you become media, we might understand you better. And so I put together a film team in New York and we went down and we filmed at Alma in 2012, in August. And we filmed all around, sort of trying to get local and ecological context, sort of. And then we filmed at Alma, and we were essentially filming the last stages of construction. And this completely impressed me. I mean, it was a mammoth undertaking. It was absolutely stunning, the scale and complexity of this construction. The level of precision required is extremely high. But As an anthropologist, I was really fascinated by how much of this work is done by humans, obviously, but also through, like, really just sheer effort, screwing 5,000 screws to Mm. every single antenna dish. So it's not like a big factory, it's people. Absolutely. And so this was the film. So with the film, we went to the high site. And... I was interviewing somebody up at the high site and I asked him, this is one of the largest supercomputers in the world is at the high site and it's the correlator and it correlates all the data coming from these different telescopes to make them cohere into a single telescope with, I think it would be a nine mile diameter. And so all this data is flying around from being collected at fractionally different times and the supercomputer correlates this and that's what it does. But I asked someone, okay, well, so how many operations per second does the supercomputer do or how does it work and these kinds of things? And he was really quite incoherent. (laughs) And after a while he stopped and he said, look, humans are really fragile at this altitude. Clear thinking is extremely difficult. And of course, there are people who work up there for extended periods of time doing very complex work. So they would tend to be on oxygen. And actually, my film crew, I was not on oxygen, but we had other people on oxygen. And even so, like the guy doing my audio, like the boom mic was falling and we were all like stumbling drunks, kind Mm. of. (laughs) Yeah. So it's very dry. Right. And there's no light pollution, I guess, as well, because it's very far away from civilization. That is true. So this gets to a couple questions. So, right, it's extremely dry. It's very high in altitude. It's 16,500 feet. And the question of light pollution actually occupies a lot of my dissertation. Maybe Mm. I'll say a little bit more about that. But, yeah, the night sky is pretty incredible, although, as astronomers know, dark sky landscapes are changing situations with this question of light pollution. And when I started going to Chile, I actually thought that the Milky Way, for example, was almost like oppressively close to me, like claustrophobic. I'd love to I see it. claustrophobic. Because yeah. obviously in the UK, and definitely in Manchester, you can't see it at all. And it sometimes feels as though the, the sky is a, a resource which we're depleting in a sense because of the street lamps. And and when you do go somewhere remote and you even see a faint wisp, it's it's very nice. Definitely. I mean, I worked on this question. I don't know if astronomers use this scale, but I have started looking into the Bortle scale for dark sky spots. And I think it goes from one to nine, one being a true dark sky, two, so very, very close to a true dark sky, would be so dark that the Milky Way would cast a shadow on the ground. Wow. 
And in Chile, some astronomers who took me observing around this area, like amateur observing, said they would consider it a two on the Bortle scale. And so the Milky Way has dimensionality and complexity and this kind of thing. It's really absolutely unbelievable. But light pollution is an issue in San Pedro. And it's interesting because ALMA is a radio telescope. It isn't concerned very much with light pollution in that region. And in fact, for the optical telescopes in Chile, they work with an office called the Office for the Protection of the Quality of the Skies of Northern Chile, which does regulate light pollution in the three northern regions of Chile. But ALMA doesn't work with them. ALMA works with the Chilean Ministry for Radio, and they hold swaths of the radio spectrum sort of in loan that they control and that nothing interferes with. So it sounds like the Chilean government really know that they do have a very, very important resource and they know how to manage it. Yeah, definitely. That's absolutely true. It's one of my biggest questions, because on the one hand, how unlikely, how odd, really, to think about the sky as a resource and how many kind of like technological and social structures have to be in place to make that make sense. So as an anthropologist, you constantly try to think of everything as just a little bit off, (laughs) a little bit strange, or try to make yourself see things as strange. So yeah, the Chilean sky is a resource. Well, what could that possibly mean? And what does it enable, right? And the light pollution question is a big piece of that. I wanted to say that doing the film, I became really aware of how much I would need to look at the concrete physicality of astronomy in order to do my research. And that's because I would say my object, essentially, that I was studying is massive astronomical data or massive observational data, with the irony being you can't directly observe it. And so if this is my object, how was I going to begin to track it and track the social world that coheres around it? So I started to focus after this film experience of seeing this mammoth infrastructure and this huge material labor, I started to really track infrastructure and materiality. And that became sort of a way I could trace the shape and effects of this traveling object called massive astronomical data, which is not available to me as an observer as well. And so this is actually how I started to pay attention to the idea of sky as a resource, because... Like I said, what could that mean? What does it enable? And it turns out to have a very specific history and meaning. And so when we talk about the Chilean sky as a resource, we're really talking about the sky as a resource for light. We're talking about the sky as a resource for astronomical data, which is light. And in 1998, after sort of lobbying and consciousness raising on the part of the astronomy community, the Chilean government passed a law... It's the Chilean Law 686 of 1998, passed under the Ministry of the Economy to formalize the Chilean sky as a protected object and also as a regulatable object. And so this inaugurates sort of the work of light pollution. And that on its own produces a whole world of like measurement, science, instrumentation, technicity. So you have the astronomical community working through the Chilean sky, and then you have a whole other scientific community working on the Chilean sky. And I found that very, very interesting. And in Chile, one of my questions was, why would we call the Chilean sky a resource when the Atacama Desert is one of the most extractive resource frontiers on the planet? So the Atacama is a mineral field, essentially. And in the 19th and early 20th century, 
It was the location of a huge boom in saltpeter, in nitrates, which are used for agricultural fertilizer and for gunpowder. And so the Atacama is one of the only places in the world that has this. And it was an enormous resource boom and then bust in 1930. And after that, copper was reconstituted as the new sort of resource of Chile. And copper obviously is still huge. Chile is the world's largest producer of copper, and it mostly comes from the Atacama. And now also lithium salts from the salt flats. So lithium and other rare salts that are used in technology are also booming. And so I wondered, is it not risky to use the language of resource to talk about the sky? It's really interesting hearing it used in that context. But I guess the sky is not depletable, not exhaustible. Exactly. So it's a very strange resource but actually sort of true to the philosophical or like linguistic roots of resource, which means something renewable or inexhaustible. It sounds weird to the ear, to me, but it has a completely different kinds of stakes than these other mineral resources. So the regulation of light pollution, when I first identified this as a big location of work that is supporting the development of astronomical science in the Atacama, for me, it was really an aha moment for an anthropologist. Because here you have the Chilean sky, which is a naturally pristine environment. It's a naturally pristine object. But once you start to look at the regulation of light pollution, you start to see that it's also partially made by human activity and intervention. So it's conserved. It's like conservationist set of laws. That have been yeah. Place. Or I would say it's shaped. Because the kinds of light that we regulate depends on the kinds of light that the telescopes want. So yeah, preserved, but shaped. And if we wanted different kinds of light, we would shape it in a different way. But also the flip side of that is recognizing how much humans can damage this environment. The fact that we can regulate and protect and preserve it is the flip side of that, is that human activity damages this. And this was, as I said, an aha moment. Anthropologists love the question of what is natural and what is cultural. That's a key anthropological question. And so I was very interested in ways that the sky is definitely a pristine environment and then also has social and political work done on and around it. And the regulation of light pollution also interested me because I started to talk with people who do quality assurance testing on data. And that's what the guys are. I'm a Manchester do. Exactly. So George, Gary, and Tom, who I met today and spent the afternoon with, this is what they work on for Alma in what is called an ARC, an Alma Regional Center. And what interested me about these data quality assurance people is that they're removing traces of all sorts of other extraneous data. And in anthropology, I'm interested in the kinds of things that make data. These are relationships. These are events. These are whatever. And it raises lots of questions about archiving and accessibility. And to an anthropologist, I mean, it raises questions about value and valuation and how unstable these things are and how pristine astronomical data can become junk data and then have another career, another life and be valuable to some other question. And actually that takes us back to the big data. One of the things that people talk about in the quote unquote age of big data is that data never die. They never cease to be potentially interesting or relevatory. And so what is different in a way, I mean, this is a simplification, I think, but we used to think that you had a question and then you went out to gather data 
about that question. And there was all kinds of paradoxes, just the question bias, bias, the right shape, what you even imagine as data or what you even begin to collect. And in quite a few of my conversations at Alma, but also other observatories, they say this is one of the things that's changing. Now the point is gather the data as much as you can, as complex as you can, as big as you can for as long as you can. And store as much of it as you can. And store as much of it as you can the questions might come later. Like, you know, we never know what kinds of questions can be asked of this data. So we just have to collect and store it. And this raises huge infrastructural challenges about organization and retrievability that I find really quite fascinating. And also who gets access to the data as well. Exactly. Yeah. And so at Alma, a PI, a principal investigator would submit a proposal to have an observation conducted and the observation would be conducted for them. And then It would be worked on a little bit through data quality assurance people in Santiago. And then it would go to the European Southern Observatory headquarters in Germany. And it would have more quality assurance testing. And then it might go to a regional center like the one we have here in Manchester. And it would have further and more refined quality assurance testing. And at the end of that whole process, the data would go to the PI as processed. The raw data is in a particular file format and the process data is in another one, but I don't, this is what I'm learning about here today. So the PI holds that data as intellectual property for a year, and then it goes public. Related to this in Chile, I was surprised to learn that this is not the language necessarily being used everywhere in astronomy. But in Chile, people told me quite a bit that part of what is going on right now with the new capacity to produce so much data is what they would call the industrialization of astronomy, by which I think they mean a hugely increased scale of the work and a real dramatic shift in efficiency. And with data at this scale, it has to be done in the way it's being done, or it would take too long, essentially. I don't exactly know how astronomers will come to feel about that or how they might reflect on that in terms of the history of astronomy, its historical trajectory. But I did see in the observatory sort of new classes of astronomical work, new labor hierarchies, but also basically just different ways of organizing the practice of astronomy that I find quite interesting. And the other thing is sort of related to this resource question and the ways that astronomical data set, though they do become intellectual property, obviously they're not monetized. They are a kind of circulating scientific value, but they're not monetized. They're not really instrumentalizable, as far as I know. And so this sort of stuns me about astronomy, that in our current sort of global political and economic conditions, we continue to support something that doesn't have instrumental sort of like price tag. I guess it does have reputational price tags and stuff as well. And that's what encourages Mm -hmm. people to join these collaborations in the first Mm -hmm. place. So that's what encourages countries to put in the money and put up for the science in the first place. It will further the reputation of them as an academic resource. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, but when I ask astronomers this question, first of all, they would point out that astronomy is not hugely funded. The Mm. projects are expensive, but compared to things we spend money on, we could be doing a lot better with our supportive astronomical research. But the other thing is this question. When people talk about the value of astronomy, they leap very quickly and almost always to this question of universal human heritage. And 
Anthropologists don't really believe in universals, but I'm an anthropologist who said my object was the universe. And so I've tried to take this question really seriously about how something of universal human heritage works in a very specific local, Northern Chile or Manchester, United Kingdom, and sort of all the local specificities and, and pieces of this network. So that's an interesting question that I did want to ask you about mm-hmm. is how do the researchers and the scientists who work at ALMA, how do they talk to the local people and how do they encourage them to have an active part in the community or not, maybe? How do they convince them it's a good idea to have these telescopes on the top of a mountain mm-hmm. where they are? It really depends on a range of questions about how people are located in this community. You Has know, it encouraged in, science in schools, for example? Yes, definitely. So the community closest to Alma, the Alma Array, is Toconao, which is a small indigenous community of Atacameño or Licanantai people. Uh, Licanantai is the indigenous language, and Atacameño would be the Spanish name for the indigenous people of northern Chile. And Toconao is the closest community to Alma Alma leased the land from Tokenau, and they have contributed a lot of money to the Tokenau School for science, language learning, these kinds of things, also other kinds of community projects. I think Alma has been trying to work on some like water questions, which mm. are severely important and challenging in the Atacama. But San Pedro is, is down the road, and it's a little bit of a different story. San Pedro is an enormous tourist hub for sort of like adventure tourism, like sandboarding on dunes and hiking across the Salar and seeing these amazing sites of the Atacama. It's a huge tourist location and has I can imagine there are adverse effects to tourism coming closer and closer to the radio telescopes, for example, mobile phones and that sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. is there competition there? Yeah, I think definitely. One of the ways that the observatories negotiate and justify their presence, which, you know, most people are quite thrilled and proud of this sky and of this presence of high technology and high science. Many, many people are very proud of it. But whenever there is sort of skepticism about how much these projects are doing locally, the answer is always that the observatories bring astrotourism to Chile And indeed, in these communities, you find many, many small observatories run by local people that actually do quite a bit of really interesting astronomy, including Andean astronomy, and do bring tourist dollars. But there's clearly a conflict here, as you say. As far as I know, people are just at the stage of saying this is a clear conflict. We can't say that the value to Chile is astrotourism when astrotourism will eventually come in conflict with the observatories. It's a big contradiction. But Alma is in a 90,000 hectare preserve called the Atacama Astronomical Park. And And so for now it's safe. I believe they don't find themselves as threatened by the RFI environment, the radio frequency interference environment. I don't think they find themselves as threatened as other places. Especially Manchester, actually. Jodrell Bank has a big problem with it. And they often hold discussions with local councils about building new houses in Goose Tree, which is very close by. So Mm. yeah, it is a lot harder here. And it can show how expanding accommodation can really hurt your data if you're not careful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I'm glad to hear that Alma is safer now. Yeah, it's safe and an extremely beautiful and interesting 
So you'd recommend Astro Tourist and some of our listeners go to Chile and take a look? I absolutely would. It's an extremely fascinating and beautiful place. And now Alma's open to visitors. Yeah. And check it out. Yeah. And this was a really interesting interview as well. So thank you very much, Katie Detweiler. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And I hope I'll get to come back, talk with you again. Oh, that'd be really cool. Thanks for that, Charlie. And now we move on to the part of the show about things that we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So a long-standing problem in planetary science is the explanation of where Saturn's and indeed the three, uh, the three other gas giants' planets' rings come from. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune all have rings. Um, and it's not entirely clear how they're formed. And one group of scientists has done some simulations of where, where they might have come from. So very early in the solar system's history, while the planets were still forming and everything was still settling down, there was a long period where there was just lots of stuff around in the solar system. Um, and that stuff either got disrupted by tidal events, it either got shattered into dust and ended up forming things like the asteroid belt and forming Trojan asteroids around the giant planets. But during that early period, it's thought that the gas giants kind of moved around in the outer solar system. There was a period of migration. And so these gas giants were moving through this heavy debris fields of stuff. And these researchers calculated whether these objects, some of which were about the fifth the size of the Earth, could have been an explanation for where some of the planet's rings comes from, specifically Saturn. So what they did was they used computer simulations to find out if tidal disruption events could have broken up these little things as giant planets came towards them and broken these massive things up into smaller chunks and ended up forming these rings around the planets. Um, what they found was that absolutely it's, it's a reasonable exp explanation for at least some of the phenomena we see in the solar system, particularly um the difference in composition between the, the the four giant planets' rings. For example, Saturn is less dense than uh, Uranus and Neptune. Uh, Saturn, if you were to stick it in a bowl of water, it would float. Oh. It's less. It's about 30% less than the density of water. Jupiter, on the other hand, is about 30% more than the density of water, and so that would sink. Uh, Uranus and Neptune are more dense than Saturn. They would sink in water. And so the idea is that as... Uranus and Neptune approached these things that were floating around the solar system, um, they would disrupt them entirely and, and there would be uh, effectively a rocky ring formed around these two planets or a rocky ring formed around each of these two planets. Whereas Saturn is less dense and so it, it wasn't able to disrupt them into sufficiently small chunks. And so a lot of the icy stuff stayed together and Saturn's rings are made primarily of ice and so that could be a, a reasonable explanation for where Saturn's rings come from. And so they've, they've highlighted that this could have implications for uh, when we're looking for exoplanets. When we're at, at the point we're able to unambiguously see exoplanets in the optical instead of using indirect measurements like transits and radial velocity uh, measurements, it's surmised that we should be looking for planets uh, that have rings, because they icy rings at least, because they will be more reflective, especially if they're oriented towards the Earth. Um, they'll be reflecting more of the star's light that they're coming from, especially if they're at greatest western or eastern elongation, the furthest point out from the side of the planet that they can be. And so currently it's not easy to see exoplanets directly. It's not that the planets are too faint to be seen necessarily, it's more that the light from the star drowns out the light from the exoplanet. If we can block out the star, we should be able to see uh, these exoplanets and we should be able to see larger ones more easily, specifically if they have rings like this. And so what these people have said is that Basically, if this is the case and all solar systems form in the same way, we should be able to see this process happening in other solar systems as well. And so it's a really cool way that we can maybe look for 
particularly bright sources near around other stars is that they may well be reflecting from more icy rings. And I just thought that was a really cool result. Um, it's not necessarily 100% true. It was only a simulation. It explained some observables, but it's another point on the graph. I mean, we still don't know where Saturn's rings came from or indeed any of the other rings. I mean, Jupiter, it's little known fact that Jupiter does have rings, but it's more like a, a sort of thin uh, wisp of dust around Jupiter, which even if you're close to Jupiter, even if you're at Jupiter, you can't really see them. Uh, they're very faint. You can see them in the radio um, because they're emitting at very long wavelengths. But it's just cool. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I think it's well known that I'm a big fan of Saturn and the Saturn system. <laughs> and so um, I just think it's a nice little result. So does this theory have implications for the formation mechanisms of the asteroid belt? I'm unfamiliar with how that came about, but it's, is that as the planets migrated out, do they suggest that they also broke up rocky things in order to create that? Or? Well, I mean, it depends on what the migration looks like. One of the problems, when we first found exoplanets, we didn't find what we thought we were looking for. We found these things called hot Jupiters, which are effectively big stars like Jupiter and Saturn that are sitting on top of their stars. And they shouldn't be there. They couldn't have formed there. They're made of very light material, hydrogen, helium, perhaps methane, and they can't have formed that close to stars. And the first one we found, which is 51 Pegasus B, it really threw a spanner in the works. But as we've gone on and found more and more exoplanetary systems, we found that in more and more cases, we're finding these hot Jupiters that couldn't have formed where they are. So what it suggests was that these gas giant planets actually moved inwards rather than outwards, rather than outwards mm. which, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the way they f move inwards from where they formed would have an impact on things like the asteroid belt and the Kuiper belt. The asteroid belt probably formed from some kind of resonance between Jupiter and the sun. Uh, Jupiter stops asteroids from moving outwards towards the edge of the solar system because the many of them particularly the bigger ones, moving a sort of tidal resonance with Jupiter about its orbit. But the thing that these exoplanets did was throw a spanner in the works of our, our solar system, because in our solar system, what is Jupiter still doing there? Why didn't it migrate inwards? And so when before we found any exoplanets, we were thinking, well, it's obvious why we have rocky planets in towards the star, gassy planets out towards the edge, because heavier stuff is it's easier to clump heavy stuff together in a hotter environment than it is lighter stuff. Um, so what this has done, again, it's just another thing that throws another spanner in the works. We really don't know how solar systems form because it was thought that ours must be typical when in actual fact it isn't. It's in fact atypical. Uh, but I guess we also have to think about the observation bias. The hot Jupiter is the easiest thing to see, right? And therefore... Hot Jupiter is e the easiest thing to see. Um, larger planets are easier to see if they're further out from the star because they'll have a, a, a bigger effect, if you like. Um, but that also sets a limit on uh, how long you need to observe them for because in a larger orbit it's going to take longer for mm. for the star to wobble to and fro for it to be found. So there's all these weird selection effects that we need to account for with exoplanets. Um, but if we can find more by looking for these ringed planets, particularly if those rings are made of ices that are oriented towards us, at least for some of their orbit, then then it's going to be really cool. Whether, whether it's useful result for that particular purpose, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. I didn't even realise that the composition of the rings was so different in Saturn. So that's fantastic. And I'm now imagining these gas giants as kind of like little cleaners that go around cleaning up the solar system. <laughs> yeah, certainly cleaning up the early solar system. Yeah. And in fact, Jupiter still to some extent does that because mm -hmm. comets that are coming in from the, out the Oort cloud or anywhere in the outer solar system, Jupiter mm -hmm. tends to deflect them back outwards away from us. Yeah. So Jupiter kind of acts like a hoover anyway, pr mm -hmm. protecting us from large comet impacts. But it, on the other hand, it does often send members of the asteroid belt in towards us so uh -huh. swings and roundabouts i guess <laughs> ah. i'm going to remain in the solar system for my odd end um, i'm going to be talking about the supermoon which as of when this episode goes out 
this will have already been seen, hopefully, by some of our listeners as well. Um, but this is a, a particularly special supermoon, and the papers are talking about it a lot. It's, it's the largest and brightest supermoon since 1948. Uh, so I wanted to have a, a quick discussion with you guys about supermoons, what, what they actually mean, why they actually, why they actually happen, and why, even though this is quite large and bright, it's still quite hard to tell the difference between this and a regular moon. And so, obviously, let's start with what a supermoon actually is. The moon is on an elliptical orbit, and uh, so it sometimes comes closer to the Earth than other times of the year. And this is one of those cases when it's actually 30,000 miles closer to the Earth than it usually is. And therefore, its diameter will appear to be 7% larger than normal, and it will appear nearly 15% brighter than a typical full moon. But... The moon is still quite small in the sky, and that's going to be quite hard to spot. However, have you guys ever looked up at the moon and seen it and thought that it looked bigger than it actually was? Or well, than usual? Yeah, I mean, it often looks bigger when it's closer to the horizon, mm. which, you know, is commonly known as the moon illusion. Yes. Uh, when it's overhead, it appears smaller. When it's on the horizon, it appears larger. But I've never looked at a moon anywhere on the sky and thought, that looks bigger than normal, at least not without the normal moon next to it to compare to. Mm. I think you've just stolen Charlie's punchline. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, is it, that's all right. This is a, a I said discussion. So. Um, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. The moon illusion is is a thing, and there's been all sorts of research going into it, and still the final word on what the moon illusion, what actually causes the moon illusion, hasn't yet been confirmed. But you're absolutely right. It appears closer when it's on the horizon, which is interesting in a way, because actually it's technically a little bit further away when it's on the horizon than it is when it's overhead, mm. and that's just used due to trigonometry. Mm. Um, but it looks bigger, and one of the common misconceptions is that that is because you are comparing it to foreground objects, which you were used to, you were used to seeing. And that may be part of the case, but actually um, that's not everything, and it goes much more complicated than that. Um, and yeah, in fact, there have been that it's been reported by pilots, for example, who have no uh, terrestrial reference frame by which to compare the size of the moon. That that they see the moon illusion as well, even though there's no trees or buildings to compare but to. You could test it yourself at home, right? You could just make, create a little mask mm. that you would like get a sheet of paper, cut a moon-sized hole out of it, and hold it up and see how big it looks without ha- having anything else in your line of vision. Yeah, apparently, that... I think a, like a 5p piece, a UK 5p piece held at arm's length should cover the moon. Yeah. And if you test that both when mm-hmm. it's uh, directly ahead of you and, and in mm. the zenith, it should be, it should cover the same angular diameter yeah. on the sky. It is exactly the same size. And there's some great time-lapse photography photos where they take them at increments over the uh, uh, the yeah. series of the mm-hmm. night. And you can see it passing higher and higher overhead and you can see it going from red to white because obviously on the horizon for the same reason the sky is blue Mm. the moon appears slightly redder Mm. Um, and it is the same size but when you just see it at one instance it does look slightly bigger so actually that effect makes it look like the moon is much bigger than than the super moon it can be quite creepy especially when it's rising Mm. and you can only see it just creeping up over the horizon I live quite high up and I can see quite far out across uh, the Pennines um, and I often see the moon just sort of creeping up, and it looks red and creepy and threatening as it as it <laughs> I really rises. I like it. I think, I think it's a really cool thing, especially when there is something in the foreground as well that yeah. does make it stand out. If you, there are some amazing pictures online, um, and there's some really good stuff uh, talking about the science behind the optical illusions which cause the moon illusion. Um, so if you look up Phil Plate's Bad Astronomy uh, Moon Illusion, for example, um, you can find some really in detail stuff on lots and lots of different optical illusions that may 
contribute to this effect, but we still don't really know exactly which effects compound to make this illusion in the first place. So it's an interesting thing. We'll have more on this in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, so I'm also staying local for my odd and end this month. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about space junk. Um, and it's kind of something we've touched upon in the Jodcast before. We've talked about specific aspects of space junk, but I thought I'd just chat about it because it's something I haven't really thought about a lot. Um, and actually, uh, my inspiration for this came from a podcast, which I linked to in the show notes, um, called 99% Invisible, which is generally about design, but they've got a fantastic episode recently about space junk. From listening to this, I found out that there's, there's something like more than 20,000 pieces of space debris orbiting around the Earth, which is pretty um, crazy, really. Um and in particular, there's this um, theory called the Kessler syndrome. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it before. It's this theory that once you have a sufficient number of objects um, orbiting the Earth in low Earth orbit, um, the number of objects will eventually start growing exponentially um, because once you've got this sufficient number of objects, then you get this kind of high chance of collision. And mm. the more collisions you have, the more objects you create, and then it just happens until you get this cascade and a stupid amount of debris. Um, and you might know that, that was kind of the premise of the film Gravity, um, which I'm not going to go into the problems with the science in that film. When I went to see that with some fellow physicists, they got very angry very shortly <laughs> in the film, and let's not go into that. You didn't get thrown out, though, like Chris Hadfield did. No. no you weren't no. shouting abuse at the screen or anything. <laughs> not quite, no. Um, oh, did you not know that? Not, yeah, apparently he was that. laughing so loud he got mm-hmm. thrown out of the cinema. Yeah, so that that film isn't exactly right. But the issue of uh, space junk is a real one. And supposedly as well, on the space station, like one of the little windows that the astronauts use has like a massive dent in it from space debris. And so you really need to think about it, um, both in terms of like putting your satellites up there um, on the space station, they need to think about it. But also if space tourism is going to become a thing, Mm. and we're seeing, you know, lots of commercial companies looking at this now, um, then we need to think about that. So it turns out people have thought about that. Um, So in the 70s, this kind of um, international agreement came into place that if you're going to put something in space, you have to say how you're going to get rid of it. Um, So in theory, everything that's gone up since then has some means to be collected or burned up or something in practice that's not really true there's still a lot of junk up there and of course there's lots of legacy stuff from the 50s and so on but i thought i'd briefly mention um an ESA mission um that is going to hopefully get approval in december this year it's called e dot d orbit it's kind of a strange name but the nickname is the debris hunter and i much prefer that one and it's a mission to send the sending of a satellite to catch another satellite so I can't find anywhere which satellite it is they're catching for some reason. But basically, they're sending up one satellite to catch one that they sent up there before. And it's either going to grapple it with like a little like robotic arm or it's going to throw a net over it, push it back into the atmosphere where hopefully it will burn up and fall back to Earth safely. So it's like setting out wacky races. But it's fantastic, I could name it isn't it? Dust yeah. the satellite. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so um, I've got a link in the show notes to the website on ESA and it's got this fantastic like voiceover video thing which sounds like a intro to a sci-fi film it's amazing um but if it gets approval it'll be launched in 2023 and i think it's more that this is the start of what we're going to see in the future so in the future there are going to be possibly private companies who's the only thing they do is collect the space debris because there's loads of random stuff up there Mm. um and some of the suggestions for how to collect it include a laser broom um, which would be a ground-based <laughs> laser that um, slows down objects. And when they slow down, they'll eventually start falling in and then they'll burn up in the atmosphere. We all want a laser broom. Exactly. I mean, that is missing from my life. Um, the other option is to have to use lasers again, but to push the shrapnel away. So on your, you can actually have lasers on your satellites that would clear their paths for them. Hmm. I mean, 
that's useful for that one satellite you kind of could be throwing debris at everyone else um mm. and then kind of more long term there's this idea that you have graveyard orbits where every so every time you've got you've got a satellite that you don't need anymore you push it into a graveyard orbit and it will just circle there i mean to me that doesn't seem like a very long-term solution um yeah because it's still going to reach that critical density that you talked exactly. about where it's just gonna, still going to the stuff is, the stuff is still there it. yeah. right it's just yeah. it's like having a big waste heap or whatever in space and um, but it, it's pretty interesting and it's something that we do have to deal with if we're going to continue to put stuff up there so it's worth looking at and also so the podcast that i mentioned before that brought my interest into this definitely recommend a uh, listen they've got an interview with a space archaeologist who studies all of the cold war stuff that's in space which is really really cool and kind of the show goes through some of her favorite objects including like tiny little needles that are floating around the earth mm. um so worth a look yeah i mean even something the size of a tiny little needle can do a lot of damage yes the, 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 the kind of velocities that things travel at in orbit mm-hmm. to a to yeah. a space station or an astronaut suit mm-hmm. so it's a yeah it's a real problem especially in geostationary orbit where we're very close to that critical density yeah there's a lot of stuff up there yeah um yeah so it's worth looking at and something i hadn't really thought about too much before yeah. i do love the idea that we can just move things out of the way like that it's one of the the so there's a a, a group in the u.s called the b612 foundation which mm-hmm. are looking at things like um how to deflect incoming asteroids should should yeah. one be on a collision course mm-hmm. with with earth and one of the things they've suggested that should be possible and actually would be a very easy thing to test, would be that if an asteroid is coming in towards us, mm-hmm. we can just send a s- spacecraft out to it mm-hmm. um, and not land on it and try and blow it up, which mm-hmm. is a, a really bad idea. <laughs> just get um, debris going everywhere. <laughs> because, yeah, then you're turning one asteroid impact into lots of little yeah. asteroid impacts, and especially if that thing's made of iron, mm-hmm. you're just not going to break it up at all. But what they suggested is you can just have a, a spacecraft just next to this thing, and the, the self-gravity of the spacecraft itself... Mm-hmm. Um, you can just sort of tug it out of the way and move it into a safer mm-hmm. orbit. And that would be an easy thing to t- test. We could just mm-hmm. take a spacecraft and just go to the asteroid belt and try and move an asteroid. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes up... In fact, what we could do, I guess, is if we do find there's an asteroid incoming, we could just move it into an orbit, a stable orbit around the Earth, and then mine it, mm-hmm. which yeah, would be a cooler true. thing to very, do. Very cool. And test equipment on it and stuff Yeah, as well, exactly, so, yeah. yeah. As long as we're not explosive equipment that can move it into a... <laughs> yeah, to be you know. quite careful with that one. <laughs> Yeah. If it was going to, say, hit in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and we suddenly took it out of the way and suddenly it's going to hit Oslo, mm-hmm. like, oh dear. Now, that is a good sci-fi that was film. That a terrible yeah, error. A... <laughs> <laughs> so. Cool. Okay, so a few of us from Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics were at Manchester Science Spectacular a couple of Saturdays ago as we were uh, recording. Uh, Manchester Science Spectacular is a big event uh, that celebrates science in general, but specifically science that's done in Manchester. And Jodrell Bank had a stand there and it had lots of things going on, including uh, the Oculus Rift, which the cosmology group have, where you can look at the universe at different wavelengths with a with sort of virtual reality goggles on and you can just look around the sky at different wavelengths various other science experiments but one of the things we also had myself george bendo and Minnie mao uh, we had an ask an astronomer stand and just allowed people to come up and ask us questions about anything to do with astronomy they wanted and we did our best to answer those questions there and then we've kept the recordings of some of those questions um, and what we've done is re-recorded our answers to them in a in a less noisy environment so what you're going to hear are three questions, one each answered by myself, George and Minnie, on some of the things that the public came up and asked us in this month's Ask an Astronomer. Here's Amelia with her question from Science Spectacular. How far away is Earth from the Sun? Wow, what a great question. Well, 
I can answer that in numerical terms. The sun is at an average distance of 150 million kilometers away, and I'm aware that in this country you guys use funny units, so that's about 93 million miles away. Now, because these distances are so far, astronomers have actually decided to give this distance a name, and so this distance or unit is known as one astronomical unit. So whenever somebody talks about one astronomical unit, that's the distance from the sun to the Earth. But as you noticed earlier, I said this is the average distance because the orbit of Earth around the sun isn't actually a perfect circle. It's more elliptical, like an oval. Um, so the actual distance varies between about 147 million kilometers to 152 kilometers away. So this is a really big distance, 150 million kilometers, and it's actually so far away that it takes the light itself more than eight minutes to travel from the sun to Earth, right? And that's just from the sun to Earth. The universe is so large that astronomers have actually got another distance measure that they call a light year. It is the distance that light travels in a year, and this is about nine million million kilometers. I've called this 9 million million because I'm aware that in the UK this would be 9 billion, whereas in the US it'd be 9,000 billion. So for the purposes of this, I'm going to refer to one with nine zeros after it as a billion and one with 12 zeros after it as a trillion. Okay, so the universe is really, really big, right? So we've just said it takes eight minutes for light from the sun to reach the earth, right? And that's just our sun, our star in our solar system. The closest star to us, to the sun, is four light years away. And that's just our closest star. There are a hundred billion stars in our Milky Way. And it takes light about a hundred thousand years to travel from one side of our galaxy, our Milky Way, to the other. And that's just our galaxy. And there are over a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. So you can see that in astronomical terms, well, you can see that the universe is very, very big, and the distance between the sun and the earth in astronomical terms is actually very, very small. So our second question comes from Natalie Shaw, and here is Natalie asking her question. Is there life on Mars? Thanks for that, Natalie. So is there life on Mars? It's an interesting question, is it, whether or not life could flourish so close to home. Mars is roughly half the mass of the Earth. Its day is of comparable length to ours at 24 and a half hours. And it experiences seasons like we do as it's tilted with respect to the ecliptic. And so at face value, it's a very Earth-like place. And early observations of Mars, those being that it had some topography or other that looked vaguely Earth-like, brighter and darker patches that were possibly water and land, led to the speculation that Mars might be rich in life, and indeed the word Martian became somewhat synonymous with the word alien. But to date, none has been found, and there certainly doesn't appear to be any intelligent life there. If there is, they're certainly not building large structures and haven't crossed the paths of any rovers that we've sent there. But the question leads to some further questions which are interesting to explore, not just to do with life on Mars, but to do with life in general. One problem comes from the fact that planets are not isolated systems. Planets get hit from time to time by comets and asteroids, and when they hit, they send a lot of the victim planet's material into interplanetary space. Much of that ejector can make its way to other planets, and with Mars being so close, it's inevitable that some material from the Earth has arrived at Mars after large impacts on the Earth. And that's true in reverse, of course, there's traffic in both directions. 
So it's very possible on a planet that's as rich as the Earth is in life that some bacteria or unicellular organisms could hitch a ride on that ejector and make their way into space and to other planets, including Mars. We know of a number of species of bacteria that can resist extreme drops in temperature, survive at very high temperatures, are resistant to being in a vacuum for extended periods, and are not bothered at all by radioactivity, and so it's possible that in the past we've sent samples of life to Mars just by being hit. And if Mars was rich in simple forms of life in the past, it's of course possible that Martian life came to us after it got hit. So there's this natural process of cross-contamination within which planets can not only swap geological material, but biological material as well. One of the things we've known since Darwin's time is that all of life on Earth can be traced back to a single common ancestor, a single tree of life, if you like. If we found life on Mars today, we'd have to be very careful about how we define it, as it may not have originated from a different biochemical scheme, and instead, in fact, may belong to the single tree of life we apparently have on Earth. The flip side of this is that life as we know it may not have come from Earth. There are some models of the early Mars that suggest that it was a better place for life to get started in the first place. And if life flourished there, early in the solar system's history, it would have made its way to Earth very quickly, and as Mars became less habitable, and Earth became more habitable, that Martian life flourished here and became the biosphere we see on Earth today. An interesting consequence emerges if we find life on Mars, and measure that it emerged independently of life on Earth, or vice versa, and belongs to a separate biochemical scheme than any life we know of on Earth. One thing we don't know is how readily life emerges given Earth-like conditions. It's possible that given any old Earth-like planet, that life on that planet is inevitable. This has been called the cosmic imperative, and we can't say whether life is or isn't a cosmic imperative given Earth-like conditions, as we have no working model for how life emerges in the first place. And so we can't say whether its emergence on Earth, if that's where it started, is typical as we only have a sample size of one. Now, Mars is vaguely Earth-like today and was much more so in the past, so if we can demonstrate that Genesis occurred independently on Mars, it lends weight to this idea that life is a cosmic imperative given Earth-like conditions, and has immediate implications for our estimates of how prevalent life is in the rest of the universe. Even more interestingly, at least to me, is the idea that if life is inevitable on Earth-like planets, is there any reason that on the Earth, life didn't get started more than once? That is, there is a separate tree of life, coexisting with the life we know on Earth today. As far as identifying new species is concerned, especially those of bacterial form, we've barely scratched the surface of our own biosphere, let alone a separate one on a neighbouring planet. And so there's the potential that as we probe deeper into ocean vents, for example, or other areas where life isn't well sampled, that we may happen across a species that belongs to a different biochemical scheme to the one we belong to, and some have called this life 2.0. So in this context, alien no longer means coming from another planet, Instead, it could be said to mean originating on Earth, but having a different common ancestor to the life we already know. As it's only in the last 10 years or so that people have started looking on Earth for this life 2.0, and if it's found, if Genesis occurred independently on the same planet more than once, again it suggests that life, given Earth-like conditions, is a certainty. So the search for life on Mars has these wide-reaching implications, not only for whether life can get going on other planets independently, but whether given Earth-like conditions, life is inevitable. If we do find life on Mars, we'll be in a better position to address some of these philosophical points. So far, though, there's no sign of life there. In my personal opinion, if we look hard enough, I think we'll find it, but I think it'll be the same life as we find here on Earth. Though that's a gut feeling, and I have no scientific basis for saying this. This next question comes from Joshua. How many stars are in space? 
Well, the number of stars in the universe depends on the number of stars in the galaxy and the number of galaxies in the universe. Most galaxies have anywhere from 10 million to 1 trillion stars. Those numbers are a 1 followed by 7 zeros to a 1 followed by 12 zeros. The Milky Way galaxy, which is a typical spiral galaxy, has 100 billion stars, or 1 followed by 11 zeros. We can use that number as a rough estimate for the average number of stars in the galaxy. Up until recently, the current estimate for number of galaxies in the universe was also 100 billion. These estimates were based on observations like the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, which were produced by the Hubble Space Telescope, staring for a very long period of time at a single region in the sky, attempting to image all of the galaxies that it could potentially see in that single region. However, even those images could miss very faint and very distant galaxies. Very recently, a group led by Christopher Consolis at the University of Nottingham performed a calculation that corrected for all of the missed galaxies and determined that the universe contains about 2 trillion galaxies. So that's a 2 followed by 12 zeros. Now, if you multiply the number of stars in a typical galaxy by the number of galaxies in the universe, you get 200 billion trillion stars, or the number 2, followed by 23 zeros. That's a lot of stars. However, this is very interestingly close to the same number of water molecules in a teaspoon of water, which is about 170 billion trillion. Thanks for that, Ben, George, and Minnie. And now we're coming on to the feedback. So we've got some posts this week. We've got a postcard, which has come from the Carter Observatory in New Zealand. And it says, Hi, Jogcast team. We're fortunate to be able to see the Southern Skies described on a Jogcast and see a show at the Carter Observatory. Really enjoy your podcast. Jodon. Uh, thanks for that, guys. Um, there's one problem. I'm really sorry, but I, c- I can't read the name on the postcard. <laughs> we've, um, I've, I've passed it around as well, and we can't quite work it out. But thank you so much. We really appreciate it. If you hear this and maybe tweet us or email us to let us know, then we'll we'll read your name out this time. What's the postcard off? The postcard is off the Milky Way over the Carter Observatory, and it is. I'm really jealous. I wanna, I wanna go it's there beautiful. and see it. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. So we've no email this month. Anything from Facebook? Yeah, we've had a couple of messages on Facebook. Um, the first one from Sean Mulcahy. Just finished listening to the new episode. A great show as usual, and a very fun- funny intro. Poor Issa, lol. <laughs> We've been a little bit merciless about at poor Issa. over the last <laughs> rule. It's unfortunate. Um, and another one from Martin Bancroft. The fast radio burst discussion reminded me of an interview from years ago about the dis- detection of sparkers, sudden radio signals. These are at parks, so they must have been peritons. It was in the brilliant Genderella episode. And he's put a link to it there. Those pesky microwave ovens. <laughs> Um, on Twitter, we've had a couple of comments um, from Marcus, who says, I enjoy the fact that you include a little more technical content than other podcasts. Keep it up, guys. Thanks very much for that. And Susan is apparently taking the last episode of the Jodcast on a long-haul flight with her, so the Jodcast at 40,000 feet there. <laughs> and if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. 
Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. And thanks to Dr Katie Detweiler and Joe Zunts for the interviews. The editors were Adam Avison, Naomi Asambra Frimpong, Tom Armitage, George Bendo and Jake Morgan. The producers were Benjamin Shaw and Andrew May. Until next time, Jod on! on.